Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. This is Jackson. Hey, it's Carrie. We have a special guest. Lynn Kohig is joining us today. Uh, she is visiting uh, Phoenix, and we said, ooh, let's email her and find out if she'll have a conversation with us. And she said yes. And I so- was delighted to say yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. So uh, let me introduce you guys. Uh, a lot of you guys are going to be familiar with her. Uh, Lynn earned her PhD in New Testament and Christian origins from the University of Pennsylvania. She was a professor at Wheaton College for 18 years, was a department chair and dean. Uh, Then she accepted an invitation to Denver Seminary, where she was the provost and the dean. Currently, she is the provost and dean. You like that job. Uh, (laughs) Crazy, I'm crazy. (laughs) At Northern Seminary in Illinois. Just a few of her publications include an excellent commentary on Ephesians, uh, published in 2020, uh, Christian Women in the Patristic World, co-authored with Amy Hughes, 2017, and Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, 2009. She's got other stuff, but those are a few that uh, I know you'll want to check out. So thank you, Lynn. Well, I'm excited to be here. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Jackson. Hey. So what are you doing in town? Because I haven't even heard of this, you know. Yeah. Well, first of all, I live in Chicago. So sometimes you don't even need to ask, what are you doing in Phoenix in February, right? Because it's just, you want to get out of Chicago. But my friend, um, Chris Gonzalez, who uh, leads the uh, Missional Training Center, Mm -hmm. um, we we know each other through another, in in another way than than the educational part. But he had said, I'd love for you to come down and talk with some, there's a number of uh, women students in the program. And he said they had been listening to my Alabaster Jar podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and plus, I'm friends with some of them as well. And so he said, would you ever come down and just visit with us? And I said, sure, if you invite me in February. So, <laughs> I'm there. so he, he completely understood. And yeah, so I've just come down and talked with, um, with a couple of different uh, groups about, you know, women in, um, in, in the Bible, women in ministry. Uh, what, how, how today, uh, the women who are part of the missional training center and in other areas, I mean, just so women are just doing a lot of things for the kingdom. And, uh, so just kind of talking about what that, what that means, what are some of the struggles and sharing also in the joy and the victories. So, Mm. you know, when I, when I emailed you and said, Hey, let's talk about honor, shame and women. And I thought, I first, my first thought was, it was a dumb thought, but I wonder if she's just tired of always talking about women in the Bible. And I thought, that's a dumb question. Do I ever get tired of talking about honor, shame, and, you know, <laughs> things like that? I'm like, <laughs> so. Course, no. Yeah, no, it's, I love, I love talking about it. So you're right there. I am not, I don't get tired of it. And I learn new things every day. Cause when you're talking with different people and they'll either ask a question or they'll have a particular comment that then mm. sends you in a, mm. in a new direction. There's always new things to discover. I love that. I love that. What are, when you're talking to these women and elsewhere, what are some of the common questions, common concerns that come up again and again that you, you guarantee you go to a place, they're going to ask this? Yeah, I, um, well, I do think there's, there's questions about how do we read uh, the Bible well when it, when it's related to women. Most women have experienced in, in some way, they've been told uh, that the Bible kind of critiques 
aspect of how they feel themselves to be wired to to be in ministry to be working um recently some women have even used the word weaponized that the biblical text has been weaponized against yeah. against me which breaks my heart to to use that kind of strong language but i know that that's that fits what how they've how they felt but of course the bible is good news mm. so it's just sometimes um wrongly interpreted such that women who um, have have the gifting um, to to serve feel um, it, unsure, unsure that really can can I do this or should I really be doing this? And so that I would say is a lot of it. There's this disconnect. Some sometimes there's um, even if I'm doing it, there's like the imposter syndrome. Maybe mm. I shouldn't be doing it. Mm. A lot of doubts, and then there can also be hurts. Yeah. So usually in these conversations, it'll surface something where, um, you know, someone had been told uh, a, a very hurtful negative thing that, that actually just isn't scripture. Like almost no one would say that's what scripture means, but it, it was addressed um, to them. And, and so they kind of carry that, that hurt that they're, they're less, they're less able to, uh, to work in God's kingdom as God made them. And so that yeah. that's what comes up a mm. lot. Yeah, yeah. And I will say I had the privilege of getting to sit with Lynn, I guess it was like two and a half, the last two and a half hours or something. And the way that you were speaking to this group of women was, you know, you're not kind of this, I'm leading the charge like against all the males. Like that's not how you see this conversation. It is very clear to me that you have a high love and affection for scripture and a very uh, reverent understanding of what it means to be the church. And I think that is a, such a healthy way of going about that conversation, right? There's so much fear that it's going to be a like rise up and put take all the men out of power. And that's just not the way that you're approaching that conversation. So I appreciate that in the way that you kind of talked us through a lot of these issues. Yeah, it was good. So when it comes to this issue, there's so many different ways of framing it. We're going to get to that. Uh, let's start off with what do you see as some of the most common mistakes or presuppositions that people have when interpreting texts as it pertains to women? I, I imagine there's a pattern that you see that, that people have in misinterpreting. Right, right. Well, I think probably the biggest, there are two big ones, I would say. One is that there's, they read most women in the Bible as having some kind of uh, sexual compromise, or there's some kind of connotation that way, or, and this is still in the sexual arena, but it's like, well, they're moms, right? Mm. So they're, they're either in a uh, proper sexual relationship with a man, they're married to them and having children, or it's improper. But they're they're not independent of the of that context. And I would say that in the ancient world, both at the time of the ancient Israelites and then the time I'm more familiar with, the Greco-Roman period, the time of the New Testament, it was in fact the case that women tended to be known by who their father was, who their brother was, who their husband was, or their son. You know, in other words, a male uh, relative would be, the person that represented the family mm -hmm. and 
that I think since the Bible was written in a real space and time yeah. to a real culture, there's going to be aspects of that culture that are just, it's how you do things, right? That's just like now, uh, um, in our, in the United States, when a woman marries, often she changes her name, her last name to her husband's last name. And she, uh, has a maiden name. That is the name when she was unmarried or a maid. I thought that was completely logical. And, and, and I think it has a certain logic, but when I tried to describe it to my Kenyan friends, when mm. we lived <laughs> over in Kenya yeah. Yeah. and they have a different pattern, right. I realized, wait, this is actually pretty convoluted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And China the same way. Women don't give up their names. Yeah. Because mm -mm. family honor, you, it's like, Throwing away your family on. This is where yeah. I came from. Yeah. 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 And actually, I hadn't realized that with China, but that's closer than in the ancient world where women, they married, but the the way the marriage was structured, she still was very much a part of her family, her family of origin, right? Her, mm -hmm. her birth parents yeah. connected with her father that way. So the it's not like in the Victorian period, let's say in the West, where when the woman married all of her wealth was then given to her husband. And I think of like Downton Abbey right? you know, and, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and all of that uh, yeah. great show, you know, but that wasn't the case in the ancient world. The woman, uh, the wife stayed connected with her family and she brought a dowry and the husband could use the dowry, but she might have other wealth that was an inheritance or in the case of uh, the Jewish uh, family that, would give a gift to their daughter since inheritance wasn't the pattern there, but it was like an inheritance. Mm -hmm. It was just called a gift. Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, just different ways of thinking about uh, family. Well, anyway, so getting back to the, the main thing with the question about, I think that's one, we tend to imagine that their sexuality was the key way that they engaged in the, in the wider world. And I, I, I think that's a misconception. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then I would say, secondly, one of the big misconceptions is that women weren't part of of the of what was going on. Um, it we have, I think, this assumption that women were at home mm. behind kind of behind closed doors, um, not out and about. And I we get that from Aristotle and his classical Greece or classical Athens, so hundreds of years earlier, where I think that was the culture for the fabulously wealthy. <laughs> um, but it it wasn't the case in Paul's time, in the New Testament time. Um, the home itself wasn't a private sphere in the way that in the United States today we think of it, you know, as kind of coming away from the public world and you know, into your own space. It actually, you'd have home businesses there. Um, you could have public, what we would call public meetings happening in the home. So it, they didn't split up public-private in quite that way. Women were shopkeepers. Uh, women could work in the fields. People, everybody who was able-bodied from about seven years old up were working. Hmm. You know, they didn't have child labor laws, sadly. So we find even uh, skeletons of kids about seven or eight will have uh, evidence of uh, like joint, um, I don't even know how to say it, but like degeneration of joints mm. from like mm. they might be rowing 
uh, extensively or hoeing in a garden. So repetitive actions right. that you can see skeletal changes because yeah. of those in really young kids. So we, I just think our imagination needs to expand and we need to see women lots of places. We have to recognize that the in these uh, Greco-Roman cities, there were statues of women who were honored because they were patrons. They mm. gave support to a trade guild or so it wasn't just gods and goddesses that were statues. There were also uh, funerary inscriptions and statues with them. So women were everywhere. And, yeah. and I think it's important for us to recognize that. Imagine that again. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny you say these things. And I, I, and I think oh, these are still stereotypes in a lot of America today, you know, where women are seen as, merely sexual in some nature or, or, or just homemakers or just those, th whatever the, the, the thing may be. And so people may say, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But let's just get give a brief example. I can see that for mainstream society, your second point, you have Lydia's dealing with purple cloth and Prisca or Priscilla as a patron. What is, what are some examples of way in which we tend to sexualize interpretations of women? Uh, yeah, that's the way yeah, we sure. interpret the Bible in a sexualized mm -hmm. way. Right, right. Think of two uh, right off the top of my head here. Um, the Samaritan woman or the woman at mm -hmm. the well mm -hmm. is uh, uh, made to be uh, sexually promiscuous. And uh, it it is based on a phrase that when Jesus, uh, when she tells Jesus, I have no husband, he says, you're right, you have no husband. Uh, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. I'm quoting all of that or yeah. paraphrasing all of that because it's important that Paul, that Jesus doesn't say to her, go and sin no more. He he has prophetic knowledge. Five husbands is, is a very large number. Yeah. And there's, I know of no one else who has had that number. I can think of... Um, one of uh, Caesar Augustus's friends, Agrippa, he, when he died, he had had two wives that he divorced. He had had two wives who died and he was married to his fifth. So Jesus didn't make a lucky guess here when he said <laughs> right. she had five husbands, <laughs> right. right? And remember, women back then are known by their marital or their family connections. So for him to say, you've had five husbands, that he knew her, right? And then the one you're with now is not your husband. Um, I think they, I can think of some examples, like perhaps she was a concubine in this case. Maybe she was with a Roman soldier um, who couldn't, if he was in active duty, he couldn't marry until he retired, then maybe they would marry. That concubine relationship is not God's best by any means, but it wouldn't have been seen as immoral to the the townspeople, mm. right? So I could see Jesus thinking, this is not God's best, yeah. mm. but also recognizing this is the way of the world. It could be that this guy uh, who she's with now, um, let's say he's a little bit older. He has kids that are somewhat grown. She can be with him as a concubine and she would be responsible to be sexually faithful only to him. She could be charged with adultery but if they have a child, that child would not get an inheritance from the father mm. because she's not mm. a wife. So maybe his, maybe the guy she's with 
has older kids who say, I don't want to split my inheritance. Think back to the story of Ruth. Before Boaz, there's somebody else mm. who was offered the opportunity, mm -hmm. and he eventually turns it down because he doesn't want to raise a son on behalf of another man, right? And so it may be, I don't know, that the Samaritans had a similar kind of mm. Leverite marriage situation going on, but... There wasn't a faithful Boaz, yeah. at least not at that point, right. that helps her. So she's yeah. with someone, but it's not the marriage relationship that God affirms. I say all of this because when she goes back to her town, they all believe her. Right. They listen. Yeah. They listen yeah. and yeah. they convert. And right. what does she say? He's a man who told me everything I've ever done. Not that what we hear in that so often is she's a sinner. Right. She told... he. Jesus told me all the sins I'd ever done, mm. but Jesus never says that. She says he told me everything mm -hmm. I'd ever done. He knew who she was in the same way that he knows who Nathaniel is in chapter mm. one of John, yeah. right? So we, we take away her honor. Yeah. Yeah. Say. We yeah. take away her honor. We have no way of explaining why these townspeople yeah. believe because a socially testimony. shamed woman like that would have been right. just utterly ignored. Not, utterly ignored. not to mention yeah. how many, how many, you think five men are going to marry a woman who's with that reputation? Absolutely right. not. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I don't think she's barren. I, I mean, well, she could be barren, but that wouldn't have been the reason for the divorces because the, well, you just look at Elizabeth and Zachariah. Mm. Um, the, the option that at least Jews could take, we have, not a lot of evidence, but it's evidence that's there, is you just take a second wife. Mm. So there's um, a, a collection of documents. It's called the Babatha Archive. Uh, Babatha, a woman who, who died, uh, 135 AD. And we have this collection of her documents, including a couple of marriage uh, or dowry documents. There weren't marriage certificates at this time, but a dowry document. Um, and some other uh material and it, she includes a marriage a, a dowry that indicates she's married a fellow by the name of Judah it's her second husband but he is at the same time married to a woman named Miriam hmm. and when Judah dies these two women then argue over um his um, I was going to say remains not his yeah. remains <laughs> but the, the, the remaining property, property. Yeah, thank yeah, yeah. you yeah the remaining property and so um, we don't know how that ends because yeah. um, she ends up uh, perishing in the Bar Kokhba revolt, the mm. revolt of 135, the failed Jewish revolt mm. against Rome. But her collection of material is found kind of near the dead, well, near the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, there in the that area around the Dead Sea. Um, yeah, so we have that evidence and some other textual evidence that that's an option for for Jews. Would Jesus have called the second wife, the man you're with now is not your husband? You know, I I I don't know yeah. if, if he would. But I'm just explaining yeah. possible yeah. options right. for why the man she's with now is not her husband, where it wouldn't have raised flags in Samaria in the right. Samaritan town as though she's somehow immoral. Yeah. But also the examples that I gave are not like God's best yeah. for what he wants, you know, his people to how he wants his people to flourish in marriage. But we we assume she's immoral. Right. And then we do all kinds of things like, oh, you know, she's ostracized. So she meets Jesus at noon because no one else will be around mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. I think it's, he's hot. 
That's why it's it's yeah. noon and he's hot. Like that's yeah. why right. he's right. And and I think I read somewhere you were talking about how even the women in uh, in Kenya they would go in the middle of the day to socialize, or you know there would be different times they would go. Like so, there's all kinds of explanations of why you go at different times. So so you brought up honor and shame and. This is a topic close to my heart. I've written a lot on, on this topic. So let's let's help people identify how honor shame standards today compared to honor shame standards then, because we all bring a lens to the text. And the natural thing that anybody today is going to do is they're going to assume certain things as if when their standards are our standards, but that's just not the case. So could you kind of unpack some of those differences in honor shame standards? Sure. Yeah, I think um, there's a... In, in honor shame uh, cultures, it really matters what other people think. Mm. And I think there is a strain within uh, the American culture that celebrates individualism. Now, granted, we do also care what other people think, and right. especially young people, both women and men, yeah. probably more than we want to admit. Right, yep. right. Nevertheless, we also kind of value an individualism, mm -hmm. and that that kind of thing or making an individual choice wouldn't be appropriate in the culture at this time. You wouldn't be honoring your parents that way. And by the way, you honored your parents no matter what age you were, right? So the the son, if he's 35 and his dad is 55 or 65, which didn't happen often, but there were old people at this time. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't a lot of them, but they were. And if it happened to be your dad, you were still obeying your father. He still controlled all the finances of the family. And I don't think people felt bad about that. I don't think they chafed under that. Right. It right. just is how, you know, how it was. So I would say that um, what, what that does is this notion of obedience and this notion of submission, which can sound uh, tight to us and, and restricting to us, wouldn't have felt the same way in the ancient world. So sons were submitting to their fathers at whatever age. I mean, that son could be married and have his own family and he's submitting to his dad. And that's, that's just, that's how it was, you yeah. know? So I think- That's not seen as shameful. And it's not right? shameful. It's, that's yeah. right. In fact- It's well, virtuous, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when we hear the word submit and we see it in the context of women at this time, we assume that it's only for women. And that it's bad. And and that's something that um, with the whole honor-shame culture, we need to reframe. Hey, guys. I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you wanna learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. I was just having a conversation maybe a couple of weeks ago with some, a couple of Afghan women who are new to this country. I mean, just have only been here for a few months. And we were talking about covering, covering their heads, their scarves. And these particular women are, are college students. 
And they said, you know, we don't typically cover here because we know what that might communicate in a negative sense to our commu- to the community around us. They said, but we will, I will say that I find a lot of safety and security and freedom in my, when I am veiled. They said, we actually find a lot of comfort in it. They said, and when we hear Americans talk about how oppressive it is, that we just don't feel that. We don't feel that oppression. And I thought, I mean, we, the way they talked about it, it was very, like, almost, uh, they had, there was an affection towards it. And um, which leads me, I don't know if we want to talk about veiling at sure. this point, but I would love to have you speak to that because I think this is one of those aspects of the New Testament we just don't know what to do with. Sure. So we don't know how to read it. We don't know how to interpret it. And yeah, we just don't know what to do yeah, with we it. All bring a, we all bring a lens to the Bible when we interpret it. And, uh, and this, so... That's one aspect of this podcast that we always want to talk about is with a lens we bring, but also right. honor. Paul uses honor shame language very much in First Corinthians eleven, where this conversation yeah. happens. So, feel free just to solve that in a few minutes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you can fix that. Sure, <laughs> sure. Set the timer here. Ten, five, ten minutes. No, I resonate, and I will get to the text for sure. Um, but I also resonate with what the uh, women are saying, and I think. Uh, we might even, if we want to try and have like an analog, uh, this might be kind of a little bit of a silly analog, but um, I was raised in a pre-spandex era. <laughs> and so I don't feel freedom in spandex in the way that others might, right? right you right. know, because it, you know, you get used to being in your body in a certain way and exercising in a certain way. And, you know, and uh, I, I still like my cotton t-shirts, you know, <laughs> I mean, I just do. And, yeah. and so, um, but in, in kind of a more serious sense, I know that there's also um, an owned sense of modesty yeah. that the Afghan women feel. It, they're grown up mm-hmm. as they have this on, and it's a it's a part then of them being uh, a woman and being uh, modest in a good in a good sense, not in an oppressive sense. Right. One of the great things that's happening in the study of women in the New Testament now. And more broadly in the field of the study of women in antiquity, but it's especially pertinent for New Testament, is how there's a space now for studying women who are acting in a culturally conservative way as though that woman is showing agency. In Mm. In the past, yeah, in the past, the idea was unless a woman that you're reading about in the ancient world, unless they acted strongly counterculturally, they weren't acting authentically. Okay. So unless they were um, you know, defying the, the protocols yeah. of society, they, they were, if they were just kind of going along, well, then they were obviously being uh, oppressed. Mm. They, they didn't show agency. They were just, I'll date myself here, but they were drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. And and so the um so the these new studies are saying, wait, wait a minute, women, women can choose a quote unquote conservative approach based on their mm-hmm. uh understanding mm-hmm. of what it means to be, let's say in your case, you were talking about these Afghan women. I don't know if they were Muslim or Christian. So I'm saying Muslim, Mm -hmm. but there are Christian women also that Mm -hmm. that cover Mm -hmm. because of the, the, just how 
they understand what it means to be a morally upright, modest woman. And they're yeah. owning that. They're not yeah. being told that. Yep. Yep. And so there's a there's actually I think a lot of interesting uh scholarly discussions among uh feminists even thinking about how do I because part of the project of feminism is a political a desire to change the political landscape. And you know, a lot of that's good. I mean, I'm all for women voting, yeah, <laughs> you know, that right. kind of thing. But some of it, there's got to be space for yeah. women to choose things that aren't uh, radically countercultural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of like in China, people find comfort and identity in conformity, whereas in the West, your identity is seen as how you're different and how you rebel. And it's so hard for people to really grasp that because your identity is both how you're the same and how you're different. It's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Right. Exactly. So, so on this veiling and hair piece, okay, how is a woman's hair related to honor or glory? Because Paul seems to think there's some kind of relationship. And and I'm, I am seeing a few scholars talk about a little bit more. Uh, uh, Cynthia Westfall, Sarah Rudin. Love those people that they have great ideas. The person that I'm going to steal most of the ideas from, though, here is Lucy Pepiot. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with yes, her? Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. I, yeah. In fact, I emailed both Lucy and Cynthia said, I love both your books. Can we reconcile them? And they both emailed me back to us, no, no, sorry. No, they can't. I know, I know. And they love each other. Yeah, they great friends, but nope, they have different ideas. And and I would say in uh, on this case, I'm I'm pulling more from... Lucy Pepiot's um, I, ideas here. I think the in terms of honor shame, as we're talking just about hairstyles or, or how women managed their their hair, a couple of things to keep in mind. The statuary at the time will often have a woman with no cloth of any sort on her head. She has a a knot or a bun in in her hair, like. Almost all of the pictures have longer hair, but it's all tied up somehow, okay. right? So that then you there's another point to note is that uh, putting jewels or like a gold hairnet in your hair, having elaborate curls was a way to show your wealth. So we have uh, stone reliefs and texts that talk about women whose slaves fix their hair. Mm. So when you go out with your hair really done up and you've got jewels in it, you are promoting your wealth. And outside of the church, that was a really good thing in the Greco-Roman, the wider Greco-Roman world, not so much within the Jewish culture, but uh, within the Greco-Roman culture, the the Gentile culture, you could elevate yourself Mm. and show how yeah. great your family was by how fancy your hair was because mm. people knew you weren't doing it on your own. Right. Yeah. You had slaves also doing that. So I think that kind of needs to be packaged in mm. here. The fact that that the uh, pictorial evidence in frescoes and on reliefs don't help us here, I think is really also very important to keep in mind that one of the reasons why 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 is so difficult is that the that it's hard to imagine what he's really frustrated with um, because you can have even the Empress Caesar's wife who is portrayed with nothing on her. And of course you have Caesar who, when he's going to the altar has his toga pulled up over his head. Mm-hmm. And when you read, there's very little in the, uh, 
in the wider evidence that talks about these customs, and they don't know why they do it this way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just good to acknowledge that this was, that there was, they probably knew what they were doing in the culture of the time, but I think it's also significant that they they don't put the weight on, on it that Paul seems to do here. And I think what Lucy Pepiot's, one of her insights, I think, is that she says this Paul is making a theological argument, not a cultural argument. He's connecting this back to, or somebody's connecting it back to creation. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see in seven through nine, right? That uh, man is the image and glory of God, woman is the glory of man. And that this whole that language harkens back to Genesis. So what what Pepiot argues is that that in fact, what we have here is Paul citing his opponents and then countering them. Like a voice Mm. and character. A voice and character, exactly. Um, And that was a fairly typical rhetorical device at the time. What what Lucy highlights, rightly, uh, is that we want Paul to make sense here. And a lot of the commentators, they almost throw up their hands trying to figure out what is going on, right? So she says, well, Paul's got to make sense. Uh, There's theology going on here. It's not just a cultural practice. Hmm. There's theology going on here. And then finally, she, she says, we've typically thought about this as a woman's issue. Right. Hmm. What if it's actually, Paul's actually upset about a certain group of men who are trying to push forward a false uh, theology of creation. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'm really intrigued by that. So she says, if you look closely at the, at the problem here, women apparently are doing something in, inappropriate with their, with their hair and somehow are rejecting the, the status quo, what they should be doing. And, Paul is very upset about this because clearly the men, and maybe some of the other women, but at least the men are either okay or they're with the practice, they're ignoring the practice, or they're ineffective. So Paul has to step in. And if you're reading this as all Paul, then what he is saying is if they don't show up with, let's say, a veil on there, and it's just, it's a covering over the back of their head. It has nothing to do with the face. Mm-hmm then it's as though they committed adultery. And that, because that's what's shorn. They should be shorn. Right. Like a prostitute. We actually don't have physical evidence that prostitutes had shaved heads. We have lots of pictures of prostitutes, sadly. Mm. (laughs) Frescoes and whatnot. None of them have shaved heads. heads, So, but that's a, Hmm. I mean, even if you're going to grant that Paul is speaking in hyperbole here, that, that is amazing to me that he's going to put so much weight on a cultural hmm. uh, ha- habit that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament and could be so bad that it's like a woman committing adultery. So, And so Lucy points that out and says, so what if instead actually it's the men's problem and that they took Paul's explanation about uh God is the head of Christ and, you know, Christ is the head of man or husband and the husband is the head of the wife, that uh, opening passage. 
And they were thinking about, especially the category of God is the head of Christ, which occurs both in chapter three and also in chapter 15 later. So it's a theme, it's a theological importance to Paul, this relationship between Christ the Son and God the Father. And they got it wrong. And they decided to say, okay, we're going to sort of reinterpret what we think women should be doing based on creation. So they say, man is the image and glory of God. But you know, the Old Testament never says that. It never says that. Humans are made in the image and likeness of God. Humans are, Genesis 1, male and female, made in the image and likeness, right? But it doesn't talk at all about glory. The place where you would find glory is in Psalm 8, where again, it's talking about the son of man or about humanity and having that special glory. But it's this glory piece mm. that yeah. is, it's not in the Old Testament. And I, Paul's a really good exegete. You yeah, know, right. I don't see him kind of like developing a, a in, in a direction that goes way outside scripture, not, not a foundational scripture that right. way. So Pepiot argues, and it's not just Pepiot, but she, there are a few others that will argue, argue this, right? So it's not, there's, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm using her work because it's one of the most recent that the, she, she is challenging the, the men's reinterpretation of the Genesis narrative to try and put back in place a social hierarchy that that has men in the position that they were more comfortable in, what the society tells them they can be in. Mm. So, okay, Paul, you say they can pray and prophesy, but I'm going to say that they have to do it in such a way that where they have to have something extra on because the man is the glory of, of God, mm. not the woman. You know, it, to me, what makes so much sense in this argument is when you get to verse 11 in this passage, Paul says, nevertheless, uh, man is not independent. Woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. And you think, but you just kind of said that, that they were. They were, right. And, right. and independent in a hierarchical way. And, and now you're, are you changing your mind? Yeah. You know, and so by, by doing this speech and character, it just kind of helps us, I think, understand the text. Remember, the text is read aloud. So think of it like a play. And the author, I'm sorry, the, the reader would, would have been coached by Paul how, how to, to say this. Well, and, and I don't think you mentioned this, but Paul does this elsewhere in the Corinthian correspondence, like the everything is beneficial, everything's permissible, and everything is beneficial. Like scholars recognize this as a common device in scripture and out like Romans seven is commonly said to be possibly a voice and character, so forth and so on. So this is not so weird. I found Pepiot's arguments really compelling. And so uh, for listeners, we'll put some of her books in the show notes. Uh, you'll need to go through, especially her monograph. You have to go through it a little slowly because you have, I actually had to go and create a separate document going, okay, Move this aside. This is where they're talking. This is where Paul's talking. Because otherwise you get really confused. But it, it makes so much more sense of the text. It does. It does. Yeah. And you're right that uh, we we know that they wrote to him and he's answering questions because he tells us that at the beginning of chapter seven. 
But even in chapter six, food for stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. Um, you know, is that, and that actually, that's a little bit, that might be a little bit later in, um, in eight, well, six and eight, and also uh, later in verse four, in uh, chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, where it says, at, wives should ask their husbands at home, because that's what the law says. And you think the, the law actually never says that. And, and I just can't imagine Paul saying that the law said what it doesn't say. Mm, yeah. mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. we can't find that anywhere. Not, not as a paraphrase, like it's just not a, it's just not a thought. Moreover, not every woman was married in, in Paul's mm, church. Right. There would have been a lot of widows just, right. and widowers. I mean, just given the hard life that everyone had. Uh, and of course, Paul would be very happy if women didn't marry and if men didn't marry. Right. So to say, you know, it's, oh, if widows and virgins <laughs> have questions, well, too bad. Right. You know, but I mean, first. of course he's not right. saying that, right? <laughs> right. He wouldn't, right. he wouldn't say that. So I think that's another example, and Pepiot points it out, that's another example of where the Corinthians are trying to restrict the freedom in the spirit that women and men have. You know, mm. that women are praying and prophesying. And that's that's a positive. Yeah. Um, but they they want to try and according to Pepiot and others, you know, rein rein that in. And I it it does. I think it makes sense of of what's going on um, in the text. And it follows rhetorical patterns at this time, which we are a bit uncomfortable with today. And I, I understand that. But if people just recognize that when, when these texts were actually written down, they were written in all, all capital letters with no spaces between the letters and no punctuation marks. There's no verse versification in it. It's just a line after line after line of letters. And it's very confusing for us to read because we're not used to that. But when you are used to it, then you begin to see the words. And then you also are, you learn from the author how the, the text should be spoken, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's orally presented. And once you, you recognize that, then I think speech and character becomes more believable. It's like when you read to your kids a bedtime story and you have the, yeah. you know, voice, big yeah. bad wolf, you know, and little red yeah. riding hood. And right. we do that anyway, yeah. you know, but we also can highlight that with punctuation. Mm. They did it through the oral, uh, oral delivery of the. Text. So you mentioned, okay. So people showing off the hair could be a sign of wealth, showing off status, whatnot. Then you mentioned how, problem could be the men trying to uh, create a different type of reinforced patriarchy in a, in a certain sense. So, so what is Paul accomplishing in his, with his speech of the veil? What's he trying to say then in light of all that? What's the veil doing? I think what he is saying is that they are uh, wrong to, to have the, the, the veil, the requirement of the veil. Mm. Uh, and they are, and, and, he's going after their theological argument, mm. right? So he's saying men, the, the, men are not made in the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man. That's not the creation story. You're trying to live out the creation story by mandating a, a veil that 
is a visible symbol of what you think is going on in creation. So he's not really going to argue the veil issue. He's going to argue the fact that you're wrong. Men are not independent of women. Women are not independent of men. And everybody comes from God. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of that key (laughs) note in there, right? Right. Paul himself had a vow. Part of the vow was that you didn't cut your hair. And then before he leaves Corinth, he cuts his hair and then he heads out. So while he was there in Corinth, he would have had long hair. Mm-hmm. which is and from the from the um sculptures and drawings of the time the roman men tended to have shorter hair typical to, of what we think of today in the 2022 men tend to have hair that typically doesn't touch the shoulders you know but we've had fashions differently uh different decades in the ancient times, your hair usually, when you see like Roman soldiers, it really wouldn't have come much under the helmet, mm. right? You wouldn't have seen it come out from under the helmet. Um, so if Paul had long hair as part of his uh, Jewish vow, that might have seen, uh, seemed odd to them as well. And Pepiot brings that out, that you know maybe there's some latent frustration from the Corinthians in seeing Paul with long hair and not embracing that possibility of discipleship or, you know, bow making to the Lord. That may be some of what is, um, is going on. The other point I think to note is at the very beginning of the text, when we have the, the statement that the head of Christ is God, what Paul means by that is this notion of the eternally begotten son. And that's an important point because in the Uh, recent history of the church in the last 10 years uh, in the evangelical church here in the United States, there's been uh, an idea cast about that there's this this thing called the eternal subordination of the son to the father. And that's a real problematic theology that is not at all part of the Mm -hmm. the scripture and not part of the earliest creeds that, that fill out for us the trinity. So the eternal, uh, the being eternally begotten, means that the father was always a father. Hmm. So he's eternally begetting. Hmm. Well, right away we realize this is this is not a there's there's no human analog <laughs> to yeah. this, yeah. right? Yeah. There was never a time when the son, S O N, when the son was not. Mm. He's always existed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we can't do that in time. There's right. always right. first the father, then the son. But right. this, in this case, you have the eternal begetting and the eternally begotten. Why this, I think Paul is stressing this to the Corinthians, is he wants to talk about how uh, Jesus in his humanness, uh, in his ministry and then his death and now in his resurrection can represent us before the father so one could say that jesus now in his raised and glorified body in heaven is eternally interceding on our behalf as our representatives he is obedient he 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 sees god the father as his head in his embodied state. So we can talk about that as the economic trinity. The trinity economic, in this case, is drawn from the Greek term, and it means plan, Mm -hmm. right? So the plan of salvation 
in the plan of salvation, as we think of the Trinity, and we think, of course, of the incarnation, that happens in a moment in time. Yeah. But the second person of the Trinity, the ontological Trinity, yeah. or the eminent Trinity, they exist as three persons with one will. Yeah. Mm. Again, that's not, that's just a mystery. It's, right. it, it's right. just a beautiful mystery right. beyond our comprehension. So Christ, is, the head of Christ is God, is, is Paul's way of trying to talk about how Christ is both fully God and also will place all things at, at God's feet because as our Savior, he's able to represent us, mm. right? So yeah. um, it, the early church totally understood that there was not a hierarchy that was being presented here, Christ being under under God. And they then understood the other pairs are not, you know, the analogy between father and son in the Godhead is not the same as husband and wife, yeah. you know, or man and woman. Um, but the in, in no way is there a hierarchy that's right. being created. Then when you get the application of that by the Corinthians, where a woman who is praying and prophesying has to somehow show that she's only the glory of man and not uh, in the image and glory of God. That's where Paul says, uh -uh, right. that, that's not what I meant by this. Right. You're yeah. not reading cre creation correctly. The, well, I was just going to, you know, I think this veiling example is a really good one. And there's several, I think, throughout the course of the New Testament where it's very easy for us as Americans in the year 2022 to to just not understand. So we we either put something into the text that's not there or we just skip it because it's confusing. What would you say are maybe just two or three questions that we can be asking of ourselves to maybe put some you know some little speed bumps in the way so that we don't there's I mean that's there's so much richness in what you just shared. So I think we we miss those things because we think they're too hard or it's just a cultural thing and we'll move on. So I don't know, do you have a couple of questions that we can be asking ourselves of the text to better understand, you know, maybe what's happening? Sure. Well, I think one, yeah, one of the things is to, to, to recognize that there are going to be parts of scripture that might be hard for us to understand, yeah. especially, let's say, in letters, which are occasional documents written for a particular occasion to a particular group. They are God's word for us, for sure. But I think sometimes uh, Christians kind of expect the Bible to be simple, right. you know, right. and yeah. commonsensical. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, just like a lot of human interaction, it's not simple. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it takes time and it yeah. takes work. I would say also spend time in the narratives and with the characters. So like in 1 Corinthians 11, these women are praying and prophesying. Yeah. If you run across then an interpretation where it seems to restrict the voice of women in the church, you think, but wait a minute, Paul, they were just whatever talking. else is right. going on, I know, whatever else is going on in right. 1 Cor 11, these women are praised yeah. for praying and prophesying. Mm. Right. And the gift of prophecy is an excellent gift. Yeah. So that, so I'd say that, and so find out, you know, especially as we're talking about women, think about the fact that Paul stayed with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth for months. He lived with them and he he uh, praises them for their work in the church. 
And he notes that uh, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, another of Paul's co-workers, who uh, by all accounts is an excellent co-worker, but apparently didn't have a full understanding of certain aspects of doctrine. And Priscilla and Aquila helped him. And, you know, that, so Paul is totally fine with a woman teaching a man. It's not like Priscilla was just standing around while Aquila and Apollos talked about this stuff. Right. She's actively, that's what the text says. That's what she Particularly with her being put in the prominent place, being listed first. Right. That's right. So, and, and when you ask yourself, you know, what was Yodia and Syntyche doing? These are women mentioned in Philippians 4. They're Paul's co-workers. They're important in the church. Enough that Paul is saying, your disunity could really end up being serious. You need to be of the same mind. So here are women who have enough influence in the church. I'll say it that way. Mm-hmm. Enough influence that they warrant Paul talking with them right. and encouraging the rest of the church to come around and their co-workers. Yeah. Um, you've got Phoebe, who is a deacon. Now, again, we're not entirely sure what all is included in that quote unquote title, because uh, the church hasn't developed enough to really, certainly not like now, you know, 2000 right. years later, where churches have a pretty clearly defined some, some of them do, on <laughs> what those words mean in their context. But she obviously is set apart for certain roles, whatever they are, uh, in the church. And she's a benefactor. So she is giving her money or her influence, if she has a certain social status, to benefit Paul. And, and Paul wants those same qualities to benefit the Roman church. And so he's introducing her uh, to them and wanting them to welcome her. And most likely she read Romans. Yeah. So, right, right. Right. So she brings Romans, which is, as we all know, a super easy letter to understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's super and to easy. orate, right? Oh, yeah. She would have orated oh, yeah. it, right? Like, she would. Yeah. Yeah. She absolutely would. And so, and if you have questions, who are you going to ask? Right. You're going to ask Phoebe. That's so right. she's in a sense, the first exegete of Romans. Yeah. Yeah. So once you know those things, yeah. then when you get to a place in, in the text where it feels like there might be, again, like a restriction from our standpoint, just take a deep breath, you know, sit with it a little bit, try and get a little bit more historical background, try to see what might be going on. If you're reading an epistle, realize that, you know, he's he uh, the, the author, let's say Paul in this case, or maybe Peter, is is working with a real community who has real issues. And, and so they're trying to make the gospel livable in that context. You know, the ancient world had the institution of slavery. It was a legal institution. So they needed to talk about these issues. It's painful. It's painful for me and for many to read sections in scripture like that. But I got to mm-hmm. look at them. I've got to see, well, where's the gospel in this? Because right. that's their reality, yeah. right? Yeah. They can't ignore their reality any right. more than... We should ignore ours. And and the gospel is good news. So, okay, now let me take the time to see. So yeah, one thing that I appreciate good. about one of the things I appreciate about this discussion and your work is that it's we're staying in the text. Yeah. So much of the way we tend to frame this discussion of women in the church, women in ministry, and so forth, uh, just leads us to talk past each other. People say, Oh, women should teach because this is a justice issue. 
or other people will make a theological argument, some of which I have a very hard time following. <laughs> um, and But I like where we're, hand, we're in specific texts here. And so I want to, this is one of the things I think is under discussed is how do we frame this discussion about women in the church? Because your starting point is going to affect your trajectory, right? So my overall question is how should we frame this discussion? And you can choose to take this as a case study, the following or not. Okay. I have a friend who says he has a very unique view of, of how he sees women in the church. He says, well, God created man and woman to rule the earth together, a husband and a wife. Therefore, a man, only a man, a married man should be, this is his view, should be a pastor. And since they're one, therefore the woman can be, it's co-pastor with him. And therefore women can be pastors. Like, and I, I, he asked me, so what do you think about that? I go, oh, there's so much in what you're saying <laughs> that I can't even begin to unpack that. <laughs> and so you feel free to pass up on that case study, but you get the point how the whole way he frames that discussion creates his own challenges, at least from my perspective, and those other examples. So how would you suggest we even frame this discussion when we enter into conversation or we read a book? Yeah, well, it sounds to me that and that is uh, creative, um, and and uh, you know, and why not? I mean, it's good to just keep talking. So that's, that's one right. thing that yeah. I would say, even if it you end up later saying, oh, I'm not sure I'm I'm liking my idea like I had before. It's it's good to talk. Yeah. Um, and then I I would say in that particular case, what I am kind of seeing is you take this the theological truth. Uh, uh, um, mandate the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it or however the translation should go you're taking that big picture of what it means to be human man and woman and then you're uh, narrowing it down very finely in a practical sense to a particular yeah particular situation without without inner any intermediary or intermediate steps yeah. so the creation narrative where you have the man and the woman filling the earth and and subduing it is not a picture of how you run the church right mm -hmm. do you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. yeah. just because yeah. they happen to be married right. doesn't mean that that's the picture it's of so running broad a church. And vague right. it's, yeah. it's hard to know exactly how to apply it specifically. Or else that's then right. too, you have to say, well, then everyone needs to be married. Exactly. Yeah, everyone should be farmers. Every, you know, like you start oh, to extrapolate exactly and it gets a little bit goofy. That's right. right? There's no inter intermediate steps in there. You right, don't, right. You just kind of jump from mm. Adam and Eve as the archetypes, mm. right? As the, mm. you know, human ancestors, the beginning. Yeah. And you suddenly drop it down into... Well, so this will work, right. you know. The, we have a little the, too much liberty to to apply such a broad statement. Such a yeah. yes, and and such a theologically yeah. rich foundational. Yeah. Like you can't take that heavy of mm. a truth, yeah. and then just apply it right. in this kind of immediate, direct way, right? It's what what that what does the Genesis narrative tell us? that men and women are made in God's image. That's what it tells us and made for a purpose. That's what it tells us. But how we live that out in cultures, um, you know, it, 
there's not everyone, as you say, is going to be married. Not everyone's going to be married for a long time. Right. You'll have widows and widowers. Yeah. Sometimes for as long as you were married, mm-hmm. you are also a widow or a widower, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's a, a marriage that has children. Maybe it's a marriage that doesn't have children. I mean, there's just so many variations in right. our experiences. Yeah, and one of the more common arguments is to say man and woman are made in the image of God. Therefore, they should both be able to be pastors. That seems to have the same kind of pattern where, we'll, okay, yes, but there's a reading a lot of the image of God. Maybe that's true, but can we make that leap? It's a little tough mythologically to go directly there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So another related thing on how we frame it is I think about Ephesians 5. And I come from pretty conservative circles. And it's seen as, say, prescriptive in the sense that, well, because Christ is head, but authority over the church, therefore it is proscribing the man is should be the authority over a woman. Whereas another way of looking at it, if you look at it descriptively is to say, hey, socially, men are functioning as the prominent figures in the household. Just That's just what it is. And so then you go, well, is Ephesians 5 being prescriptive? Is it being descriptive? You see, you get into these issues. So uh, in all of these, you know, you could go through 1 Corinthians you know, 14, 11. Is it descriptive, prescriptive? How do you help people sort that out? So, because that's a framing issue. Yeah. How would you help people navigate that? Decision? No, and I, I like the language of prescriptive and descriptive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that sometimes people talk about, is it transcultural or cultural? And I think uh, in, in a way, they're always both because it is God's word to us mm. today. So 2,000 years ago, there, there was a community in Ephesus made up primarily of Gentiles who had been raised Gentile and had come to faith pretty recently. And they're living in a city that is that has one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this enormous temple to Artemis that permeates her worship permeates that city. And you've got the empire starting to really exert its influence. And so you have the imperial cult rising up. This is all the things that are happening. And these pagans are now being asked to follow the one true God through Jesus, the crucified one, by the way, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who is now raised from the dead. And they're experiencing life in the Holy Spirit in community. So that that's their life. That's yeah. their reality. And so much of, of what Paul will say to them in Ephesians is, is necessary for me also to know. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's all prescriptive, but it's also all descriptive yeah. because he's talking to real people right. in, in Ephesus, in Greek. You know, I mean, it's so... I feel like we, um, when we try and separate uh, transcultural from cultural, what we end up doing is imposing our own culture mm-hmm. into what is transcultural. Mm-hmm. And that's- yeah. They're all cultural readings, just which culture ours are there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So not separating those two categories, but trying to keep them together as we read it through, I think helps us hold a mirror to our own culture and realize what- you know, what we are assuming. An, an example, uh, not from Ephesians, but um, years ago, I was listening to a Thai pastor give a talk. He was a student getting his PhD, and he was talking about Thailand and about uh, 
how much he really liked the monarchy there and that they were very good for the country. And he was not really sure that the democracy or the, yeah, the democratic democracy movement was necessarily positive for the, for the country. And I just sat there. I thought, wow, I've never heard anyone be mm. pro-monarchy, you know? I mean, mm. like You're right. in my area, you know, right. we toss yeah. the tea into the right. into the harbor. We don't let this happen. But I I realized at that moment, wow, I can impose my understanding of how best to organize a nation, mm-hmm. um, politically speaking unconsciously into the biblical text. And yeah. with that, then I assume, well, everyone should have a vote. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And everyone, which then is like, everyone should have a choice, which then kind of is individualism. Yeah. And you just go down the line, right? Yeah. And this Thai pastor really reframed things for me. And of course, both are legitimate, I would have to say, or let me say it this way. Um, neither are completely affirmed in scripture or ruled out in scripture, yeah. right? The scripture is not going to be talking about that form in the New Testament time period. Yeah. They're just stuck with the imperial uh, rule and, and are trying to make do. So I, I think the, the idea of being very wise and, and self-reflective towards your own uh, culture. That's why I don't really like the, I, the question, what did this text mean to you? Because mm-hmm. I tend to think that just kind of reaffirms our own, biases it can you know i mean i do think the text can speak to you so that i i believe but in the yeah just saying that yeah what does it mean to you is a very different question so like like i said i come from a background of of a lot of complementarians around me and they tend to be very fearful of historical reconstruction because they say you can make anything out of historical reconstruction but is it not right that even when you're looking at lexicons and you're looking at means of words there's historical reconstruction built into that lexicon and That's right. what right. authentane means or this word means or uh, head means. And am I, am, oh, you're you, absolutely would you, right. Would you concur with that? So everybody's historically reconstructing. Now, I can immediately hear people's voices going, what are you saying? We can't know God's work. It's all relative because it's all historical reconstruction. You know, you no, know I know we're, we're running out of time, but what would you say to at least that so you can allay people's fears that just, you know, you know, on this issue. Well, and it, and it's, it's very good to be cautious, I would say, you know, because we love God's word and it's a treasure to us. I mean, the, the word Jesus is, his story is told in, in the word and throughout, I mean, from creation all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, uh, what a gift it is. Back in the, getting back to, let's say, the community in Ephesus, those pagans, they never had the word of God. Now, the Jews did, right? And they could read the word of God in their synagogues, and the Gentiles could come by and hear, you know, Moses. I mean, uh, James talks about this in Acts 15, how the word has been read in these cities, right? But the pagans didn't have anything Mm. like that. So we, we have such a gift that our God reveals in word and then also in the word. So it is, I think, good to, to continue to ask ourselves, how are we handling this? Are we, are we doing it well? But then I would also say we have to realize that although this is God's word to us, it was actually 
a letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say Ephesians yeah. at specific one specific people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. John yeah. Walton's phrase, the Bible's written uh, for us, not to us. Yes. I think just absolutely captures yeah. that so well. That's right. That's right. And so once you say that, then you have to do an historical reconstruction because it's honoring to God's word. I have to respect the first people that received it. And it also then emphasizes authorial intent. So that's another thing where like we tend to, uh, in, in the academy today, we have theories that, well, maybe the meaning of the text is located in the text itself, or maybe it's located in the reader and the Mm. reader just brings the meaning to the Mm -hmm. text. Neither of those two uh, options uh, take full account of the fact that these um, texts that were written were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How, mm. However you want to yeah. parse that out, yeah. this is actually God's word. Yeah. Right? So there's an authority beyond the human authority. However, that human writing it was believing uh, they were uh, giving God's word, God's instructions, God's encouragement to God's promises, uh, to their congregation. So authorial intent, what, what would Paul have meant? Mm. Um, Which means you have to consider his context. You have to. Right. One of the less studied, uh, honor, shame categories is the Jew Gentile. Mm. That's all over Galatians, Romans, Ephesians. It's all over that. It's very central to Paul. We tend not to pay attention to that very much, but we should, because I think while we don't wrestle with the question in quite the same way, by analogy, it can really help us in our own questions of ethnic and racial diversity that um, we're struggling with in so many ways in the church today. So I want to know about this Jew-Gentile situation so that I can really attend to analogous situations today. And how do I know that? Why well, I have to know the history. Yeah. So you, I would disagree with the idea that you can just make history say anything. You can make any text say anything. Right. 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 So historical reconstruction in and of itself is not flawed. If anything, it gives you boundaries. It gives yeah. you boundaries. Because otherwise, right. if you're just looking at your own cultural lens, you kind of free, you know, freestyling it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So unless you had a final question, um, I, I wanted to uh, close – with just this, you know, there's ambiguities in some of these texts about men, women, gender, a woman, the church ministry. How do you determine who has the burden of proof? Because on some of these issues, you're not going to have a syllogistic A, B, therefore C. Mm-hmm. There's going to be go, well, it seems this, I can see the evidence here. And you got to go, well, the burden of proof is over here. Therefore, I'm going to believe this. Because until they prove otherwise, I'm going to, sometimes that's the only thing you got. What do you say then? Um, how do we figure out who has the burden of proof here? Yeah, I I tend to uh, maybe like the idea of where am I anchoring, you know, rather than what walls am I building around me, hmm. right? So if I have an anchor, then of course, as you moor your boat on that anchor, you can let the chain out, uh, maybe hmm. even a bit of a distance, but you're always coming back to the main point. You never lose that main point. And I would say that um, we've, as we continue to reflect on those teachings that are both simple and remarkably deep, going back to those, the fact, and I'll stay in Ephesians here, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and 
through the cross made peace mm-hmm. and created one new humanity, created this body called his body, the church. That Those things both happened in this cross and resurrection. And now we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's also like I'm seated with you and yeah. I'm also all of us right. yeah. are right. seated with the Lord. Those kinds of realities, I think, can help us then when we have to make a decision to help another person flourish, right? Because that's what this gospel does. It brings a unity that flourishes, that grows, that matures. So I would look at whether my decisions are uh, allowing for this flourishing. Mm. Mm. So that'd be one thing. I think, secondly, I would try to look at the the narrative pieces, try to reconstruct how they were interacting. I think it really matters that Paul talks so positively about Andronicus and Junia, about Priscilla and Aquila, mm-hmm. about Phoebe. He it's meant like those na- things. narrative trajectory. That's right. Yeah. And, and how he behaved. You know, uh, we say about kids that they they learn more about what they what they see than what you mm-hmm. tell them, right? right. Yeah. You know, and so you can talk all you want, but I'm seeing how you're acting. Right. Mm. So yeah. look at how Paul acts. That's good look word. at how Jesus yeah. acts. Yeah. So that'd be another way to kind of help you discern. And you may, well, I'll, I'll close with this. When we were living in Kenya, there were times when some Kenyans, like all people, you have good uh, actors and you have just a few bad actors. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. It's just human nature. And so we got ripped off. Mm-hmm. Money got stolen because we we were naive and believed a falsehood. Mm. Now, at that moment, we could either decide, okay, I'm not going to believe anybody again, or I'm going to be very cautious. I'm going to be very cynical. I'm going to, you know, and just kind of assume that everyone is mm. trying to take advantage of me until they prove otherwise. And my husband and I just decided, no, we're not going to live that way mm. because we'll take the risk yeah. that another person will rip us off and we'll try and be wise. I mean, we're not right. <laughs> <laughs> trying to learn from this, but we're not going to make the mental decision to treat everybody as though they're trying to rip us off. Yeah. yeah. And that I think it it matters what mindset you go to the scriptures with. It's very important for women to know God loves you and and has made you as you are for his kingdom purposes. And he's singing over you. Mm. He loves you. Live into that. Don't fall back into a, a cynical. And the same, uh, I would say for men, because they're Men are hurt too. Yeah. <laughs> this is a yeah. human demeanor. So I think that's also important just mm-hmm. to have the a godly mindset as as you go into it, which you know the, the Lord promises to to give us that mm-hmm. and to renew our minds. Well, thank you, Lynn, for yeah, joining this conversation. Really uh, I listened to a lot of interviews in preparation for this interview, and there's so much here that you won't hear in other interviews that you've done. So thank yeah. you for just bringing a wealth of knowledge and fresh insight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation, the opportunity to meet you both and hear about your own uh, ministries. And yeah, so thank you for the invitation. Well, guys, we are going to include uh, a lot of uh, resource in the show notes. So definitely check those out. Uh, This is a worthwhile conversation. 
please, if you would, wherever you get this podcast, leave a comment, a recommend it to friends, give us five stars. We'd appreciate that. That gets the word out. So thank you for joining us. Keep the conversation going. Thank you.